0: Welcome to The Director's Chair. My name is Michael Fullilove, and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On The Director's Chair, I speak with political leaders and policymakers about their lives, their careers, and their views on the world. For the final episode of The Director's Chair for 2021, I'm delighted to be speaking with Australia's Shadow Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong. Penny was born in Kota Kinabalu, Malaysia, and she moved to Adelaide as a child. She studied law at the University of Adelaide, where she became involved with the Campus Labor Club. After she graduated, she practiced law, and then she went into politics. She was elected to the Senate in 2001, and four years later, she was appointed to the Shadow Cabinet. Between 2007 and 2010, Penny served as the Climate Change Minister, and between 2010 and 2013, she served as Finance Minister. Penny is currently the Leader of the Opposition in the Senate, and the Shadow Foreign Minister. Thank you, Penny Wong, for joining me from quarantine in Adelaide for the Director's Chair.
1: Oh, it's good to be with you, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: So, Penny, you were born in KK in Malaysia. You moved to Adelaide at the age of eight, I think. What were your early experiences of Australia?
1: It was cold. <laughs> I remember the first winter. I'd never sort of experienced, you know, cold over uh, months, and I, I remember that. And I remember being very sad about the food at the time. hmm I did have a difficult kind of you know, integration into Australia. The school I went to, I was the first Asian most of those kids had ever seen. And, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult experience, but probably quite formative.
0: You originally went to Adelaide University to study medicine. What was that all about and why did you shift over to law?
1: Well, I got um, you know into medicine because I did maths, physics, chemistry in year twelve, which is what good Chinese girls do, and got a place in Adelaide Uni Medicine. I went overseas and did a student exchange scholarship to Brazil, and decided I did some sort of community work there, including some in some hospitals, and I decided that I really didn't like the sight of blood, so uh, I came back. and In fact, I studied arts for a couple of years before I decided to do law, and then ended up doing a combined degree.
0: But the sight of blood didn't put you off politics, Penny.
1: I mean, you know, every time I say that, that's what people say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, tell me about that decision, though. You, you I, as I understand it, you got involved in Labour politics when you were at university. When and why did you decide you wanted to have a life in politics?
1: Although I was younger, you know, reasonably young when I was first elected, my decision to stand for pre-selection you know, wasn't something you know that I decided as a young person and. Yeah, kept focusing on it. In fact, I I did question for some time whether or not you could make a difference in politics. And I actually went interstate uh, rather than pursue a a state parliamentary opportunity that had been tossed around. And I worked in New South Wales for a while and then ended up getting a job with the incoming car government. And I guess the question for me was, can you make a difference? Uh, And that experience instilled in me a pretty clear belief that who was in the room mattered. Uh, and I decided I wanted to be someone in the room. And so that's when I came back to Adelaide and decided to stand for pre-selection.
0: So in 2001, you're elected to the Senate. How did the reality of politics live up to how you imagined it to be? I mean, it, it is a tough and unforgiving world of branch meetings and airport lounges and early mornings and all that time in Parliament House. How did you find it when you 1st went into politics?
1: I think I described the experience of being in Parliament House as being on a spaceship. I remember one night there was this enormous storm in Canberra and we'd been sitting and I'd, I'd been doing stuff in the chamber or in committees and I hadn't really noticed the storm and we were driving home and there were branches all over the road and the bloke who was driving me home said, I said, oh, what's happened? He said, oh, there's been this massive storm and I thought it was like a metaphor for how Parliament House can be. We were so abstracted from it, I didn't notice. I think politics has become much harder. Uh, I mean if you look at democracies everywhere that's the case. There are many more pressures on our democratic processes and our democratic institutions. Uh, some of those are you know, about the people in them and the observation or lack of observation of democratic conventions, which are so important to the functioning of democracy. Some of those pressures arise from the media environment and the fragmentation of the way in which people get their information. And I think all of those things have meant that one of the preconditions of democracy, which is that we have agreed facts around which we can then contest policy, is no longer the case. So, you know, we we are in a world where facts themselves are disputed, facts themselves are undermined. We see a lot more misinformation and disinformation. And I think that actually puts a, a deal of pressure on the on our democratic system. It's something we all have to deal with.
0: You say you think politics is getting harder. Is it the kind of vocation you would recommend to your daughters or their friends, for example?
1: <laughs> That's a tough question. She do remember one time, my eldest daughter, when she was younger, we were in a non-sitting week. Mm-hmm. She and Sophie were in Canberra. Uh, and. I asked if they could let us into the chamber so she could just see where I worked, and so she was in the chamber. And I said, "Oh, this is this is where Ma sits. This is where mm-hmm. I give speeches." And she looked at me. She said, "When I'm older, I'm going to talk here. I'm going to wear a suit and I'm going to talk here." And I said, "No, no, 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 no! Don't do this. Do something else."
0: <laughs> you succeed early in politics. In two thousand and seven, Mr Rudd is elected as prime minister, and you become the climate change minister. There's an enormous amount of optimism about the way that that issue is developing and the changes that the Rudd government usher in. Let me ask you a a kind of a long-term question if I can. It it does seem to me that a generation or two ago, Australia might have led the world in finding market-based solutions to the problem of reducing emissions. We used to be very good at solving those kinds of problems. It hasn't been like that over the last decade or two. And in fact, climate change has broken Prime Ministers and opposition leaders on both sides of politics. It's gone close to breaking our politics, I would say. Why has this issue proved so insoluble for our country?
1: I think it's less that we've got less good at solving problems. We know what the solutions are. Uh, It's become much, much harder to deliver them. And there are many factors which have driven that. One of them is the decision by parts of our politics to... Be prepared to engage in fear campaigns, scare campaigns, personal and vindictive campaigns uh, in a way that is really has, I think, become quite poisonous. And you might recall that I, in fact, got a deal with Malcolm Turnbull when he was opposition leader and I was climate minister on mm-hmm. a carbon price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that what ensued then, as you referenced, is Barnaby Joyce and others toppling him as leader whilst the bill was being debated in the parliament. And in fact, you know, we were so close to getting a bipartisan vote on climate policy, which would have set Australia up. That is instructive because what it reminds us is when small groups of people are prepared to say and do anything in order to obstruct and destroy the prospect of change, change is very hard to implement. So my greatest learning out of that whole experience of climate, and I think these last decade and a half, as you point out, which is so broken uh, in terms of a policy outcome and in terms of an outcome for the future of the country, is that we have to remember how hard change is and we have to be prepared to work together in order to give effect to that change. So part of the challenge was we had the Greens voting with you know, Barnaby Joyce on the carbon price we had, the business groups walking away over the subsequent years uh, from sensible economic policy on climate. And I think the the reminder is you have to build a coalition for change, just as Joe Biden had to build a coalition to change the presidency. And people have to be prepared to work together to achieve that. So my one message is always to people, if you want action on climate, you have to change the government because This government is never going to act on climate in any way that is real.
0: We'll come to this government in a minute, but after the 2010 election, you became the Minister for Finance and Deregulation. And at that point, the world was still recovering, getting over the global financial crisis. What lessons did you draw from the GFC?
1: Well, I learned a lot about the role of government and the importance of sensible, informed economic policy. I learnt in a very real way that politics and budgeting are all about counterfactuals. You're never choosing between or rarely choosing between one great option and one Mm -hmm. bad option. You're usually choosing between a range of options that you have to determine which is most optimal. Mm. So, you know, those were important lessons, I think.
0: You've been Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs since 2016, Penny. What's the biggest area of difference between Labor and the Coalition on foreign policy at the moment?
1: Perhaps we start with where we are together, like what we share. I think we share an assessment or an understanding that, as I've said, you know, this is the most difficult time in Australian foreign policy since the end of World War II. I think we face more difficult and uncertain external circumstances than we face at the end of the war. We also understand, I think both parties of government understand the implications of China's increasingly assertive at times aggressive behaviour and uh, the changes in the relative position between the US and China and that we are in an era of strategic competition. Uh, Where we differ is how we would approach that. And I think the fundamental problem that we have, and it's been on display over the diplomatic spat, diplomatic rift that we've seen between the French and Mr Morrison and what has occurred in terms of the public comments of president biden the difference is we would not seek to prioritize domestic politics over australia's foreign policy interests and i think time and again this prime minister scott morrison has demonstrated a willingness to do so and we can point to the you know the precipitous announcement about the move of the embassy to jerusalem during a by election And we can point more recently to the government doing two things, which I thought were extraordinary. One was the release of private text messages between the French president and Mr Morrison. But also, and this got less publicity, but I think is as important, a National Security Council document being shown to a journalist in order to undermine the public comments of President Biden. Now, I think those things demonstrate a willingness to do enormous damage To Australia's relationships and our standing in the world as a trusted partner, all because Mr. Morrison was putting his personal interests first.
0: Let me ask you if Labor wins, you would be the foreign minister. What kind of foreign minister would you like to be, Penny? And is there a former foreign minister whom you would regard as a model?
1: Well, I think on the first question, what are the things that I would identify as my priorities? I think the first is. I think the role of Foreign Minister is to project Australia to the world or explain Australia to the world and also to explain the world to Australia. And on that, I think I would want to be working to project an identity of Australia that is modern Australia in all our multicultural diversity and an Australia that is proud of and reconciling with its First Nations peoples. Uh, I think we don't express the full gamut of modern Australia in how we project into the region and the world, and I think that's to our detriment. Uh, Secondly, the approach I would take is the one I've expressed to you previously, which is we take the world as it is, but we seek to shape it for the better. Uh, And, you know, that is, I think, the labour tradition, and, and that is central, I think, to how you have to think about foreign policy. And the third is I would be instinctively focused on the region in part because of who I am and in part because I think the you know, security within our region, particularly at a time of escalating competition between the, the great powers, is even more of an imperative for the nation. In terms of who, who do I look to as, you know, I suppose, professional role models? Obviously, Gareth Evans. You know, he's a great former Labor foreign minister and who was an activist and he brought an energy and an intellectual rigour to his diplomacy and to his work. Offshore, the, the person, not a foreign minister, but an international leader, the person I would look to would be Angela Merkel. Mm-hmm. I think she's someone who's principled and tough and professional and has demonstrated leadership in difficult times and held the course uh, calmly and resolutely and at times bluntly. That's a real example of leadership.
0: What about... Mr. Albanese, what kind of foreign policy maker do you think he would be as Prime Minister? How would you divide the workload between the two of you, and what would be the main themes that he would focus on as Prime Minister? Do you think?
1: Look, I think Albo is in many ways a Labor traditionalist on foreign policy, and he he talks uh, very much in you know those terms: the alliance, uh, the region, and multilateralism, and, and that is how he thinks about foreign policy and how we operate in the world. I think in terms of his personal attributes, he's a man of integrity and he's somebody whose word you can trust and and that is what he would bring to his personal relationships with other leaders, you know, that authenticity and that trustworthiness. I think also he is somebody who understands the importance of the national interest. It's an overused phrase, but it is, I think, important for politicians to remember when you're in this role particularly in roles which go to Australia's national security or Australia's foreign policy, that you have to look first to what you think is the national interest and you have to be prepared to put domestic politics aside in pursuit of the national interest. He's also somebody who is you know, he's pretty tough and so he would assert our interests very clearly and you know, without fear and bring that independence of mind uh, to foreign policy.
0: You mentioned Gareth and you described him as an activist. What do you say to those people who say that the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has become less influential in Canberra? Is that correct, do you think? And if, if you think it's correct, how would you seek to change it as minister?
1: Well, I think it is correct. Well, I, I hope that's part of the explanation for the latest debacle, either that or, you know, it's not been as competent as it should be. It is very important when you're facing the sort of circumstances we're facing that you don't just look to past playbooks and you also employ all of the instruments of statecraft to shaping the world that you want. Uh, And remember, foreign policy is not just diplomacy. It is about trying to shape the choices Australia has. So you want uh, at times where some of the choices from a strategist's perspective uh, or a military perspective are pretty invidious you want to be working as hard as you can to shape those choices and give the the nation other options. Uh, I think DFAT has suffered uh, obviously in terms of resourcing under this government. We've seen around $12 billion cut from our aid program over the period they've been in government. Their budget will be smaller next year than it was some 15 years ago and with all due respect to my counterpart I think in part their influence is also being diminished because it doesn't appear that the foreign minister is a key player in some of the major decisions when it comes to foreign policy and international relations. So I think there is work to do, both in terms of resourcing of DFAT, leadership of DFAT, but also making sure that DFAT recognises the situation the country faces and is prepared to make the changes and develop. More of the capabilities that are required in order for it to best deal with the world as it is and shape it for the better. In terms of the most recent diplomatic staus, I hope that DFAT and the national security community do undertake an internal review about what has gone wrong in terms of the AUKUS announcement and the clear diplomatic problems with the French uh, and some of the public statements of the Americans. If it is the case that the advice was good but Mr Morrison didn't take it, then there's clearly only an issue at the political level. But I suspect there are also things that should be learnt about how this was managed in government in terms of the advice of the department and whether that advice was influential. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the submarine announcement is, is grounded in a capability argument and there is a compelling capability argument. But as you know, when you make a decision in the national interests, which you know is going to be a difficult decision to land, you have to do the whole job and you have to focus on what is it that we can do to minimise the blowback, minimise the damage to Australia from landing such a decision. Clearly that was not done and I hope you know, those in the leadership of the department and the broader national security community take this opportunity to reflect on that. I think there are demonstrable failings from our leaders, politicians, so demonstrable failings from Mr Morrison. But I hope at a bureaucratic level that there is some thinking about it.
0: Last question on DFAT, Penny. Recently, the Institute published the Diplomat Database, and one of the findings from that database is that Australia has more political appointees than ever in diplomatic posts and that former politicians are being sent to posts not just Posts that have traditionally gone to pollies like Washington and London, but also different kinds of posts like Tokyo and Singapore and and New Delhi that traditionally were staffed by career diplomats. Is this a problem? And if it's a problem, will you commit to reducing the number of political appointees you send as minister?
1: Uh, Yes, it is a problem. And it's a problem because the government doesn't think diplomacy matters uh, and have used too many diplomatic posts essentially to deal with largesse to mates regardless of whether or not they have capacity. Now, I think some politicians can be very good heads of mission and there are certain posts where having someone who is, you know, the weight of their history and brings with them the the capital of their personal relationships with senior people in the government is a good thing. But I think that there are so many announcements that we have seen where you would want someone with more diplomatic capability Uh, rather than a political person. What I will be doing is to try and assess whether or not you've got the right person for the job.
0: And would you reduce the number?
1: Oh, well, you know, there are a few people I certainly wouldn't have appointed regardless of party politics. Uh, I think you do need to turn it around and I think there has to be a a capacity argument. The former Premier of Tasmania going to Singapore, I just found extraordinary. Mr. Hodgman might be a nice guy, but Singapore, as you know, given particularly the region and its place within ASEAN and its really quite uh, penetrating assessments and insights into China, the US and the region, it's a very important post uh, and it is beyond me why they would send uh, Mr. Hodgman. That's only one example.
0: All right, let me ask you about, Penny, some contemporary issues. Let me start with China, as you've just Mm. mentioned it. We've seen a a significant deterioration in the bilateral relationship over the past two years. You mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast. Whose fault Mm. is this, do you think?
1: I'm not sure that's the best question to ask. Uh, I think the relationship has deteriorated in great part because China has chosen to become much more assertive and at times aggressive, and the relationship has also deteriorated Uh, because China is engaging in coercive economic activity. And that is something all of us should be pushing back on because it's not only detrimental to Australia, it is inimical to a a rules-based multilateral system which has served countries well and maintained peace and stability and founded a context for the sort of development that China has engaged in. And that has been a good thing. I have said previously that I, I don't think some of the handling from the government uh, has been optimal of some of the aspects of the relationship. I try to think about it in this way. I think there are there are structural aspects uh, to the relationship where those structural differences are going to mean we will have ongoing differences to manage regardless of who is in government, uh, and they are Things like, you know, our views about the South China Sea, our views about trade and coercion, Australia's views about human rights and democracy, and they are not going to change regardless of who is in government. I do think at times that the government has reached for the domestic rhetoric because it has perceived there's some benefit in that. I don't think, you know, that has been helpful. So I guess in summary, I'd say China has changed. The nature of our relationship with China has changed. There are going to be enduring differences that need to be managed by whoever's in government. However, as you know, Michael, there is no scenario where China doesn't matter. So we can't simply disengage. What we do need is to take the politics out of this issue. And if there was one thing that I could say about the government's approach to China, I would say talk less and do more.
0: What would be one thing you would do if you became foreign minister tomorrow to try to restart the relationship, given that they don't seem to be taking our calls? How would you start?
1: I don't know that we alone can restart the relationship. China has to make a decision that it wants to re-engage, but I think we would try to take a different approach to how we talk about this domestically, or we would seek to do less around inflaming some of the domestic rhetoric. And one thing I would do is to talk much more openly about the experience of Chinese Australians through this period, which as you know from some of the research you've done at Lowy, this has been a very difficult time. And I think some outreach to that community and some articulation of the experience of them of the discussion about China has been very difficult. What else do we do? Uh, I think you you need to focus on the region. Uh, You need to engage as closely as you can with the region about what sort of region we want, the features of the region we want, uh, a region which is stable, prosperous uh, and where sovereignty is respected. And I would also be engaging on what is the, what I described as the settling point. I think, you know, Kevin Rudd cooked about managed strategic competition, but what are the guide rails around US-China engagement and US-China competition and finding commonality of interests with the region on that is important because the region should be asserting uh, to those great powers, you know, our ally and China, what it wants uh, in terms of that settling point. I think there are also economic diversification imperatives that we have to engage when I mean, we are more, not less dependent on China. We, we know uh, that we need to diversify our exports. That's in part a function also of the world moving to a bit more carbon-constrained world. Uh, so we have to diversify our export markets. That means diversifying what we export. That will make us more economically resilient.
0: All right. Speaking of the region, what would be your priorities as Foreign Minister for Southeast Asia?
1: On Southeast Asia, we have to do more with Indonesia. And we have to recognise where Indonesia is. The impact of the pandemic has reaped an enormous development disadvantage onto Indonesia. It's been a big step back in terms of their economic development. So we do need not only to do more when it comes to vaccines, but to work out how it is we can best work with other partners to enable uh, stronger recovery from Indonesia. I read one report that said that you know, Indonesia had lost a decade of development uh, as a consequence of the pandemic. Now, you know that may or may not be true, but it gives us an insight into the importance of working with Indonesia, which, as you know, uh, is so central to ASEAN and the security of our region. One of my concerns about the AUKUS announcement: there are a number of foreign policy. Challenges arising out of the way in which the Morrison government handled it, and one of those has been the concern raised by Indonesia, uh, and that ought to have been landed better.
0: Labor supported the AUKUS announcement. Mm-hmm. If you were foreign minister, how would you reassure countries like Indonesia and Malaysia that AUKUS was a net contributor to regional security and stability and not a non proliferation concern? How would you persuade them?
1: Engagement, uh, and I would not have uh, handled the announcement in this way. Whenever we're dealing with Southeast Asia, we have to remember the way in which historical narratives can shape people's interpretation of events. Uh, So we still have a way to go in demonstrating to the Southeast Asian nations that we're not simply a a primarily Anglo outpost post-colonial power. And we've only recently had a Prime Minister who kept talking lovingly of the Anglosphere. So we have to remember that how some things are understood and received is in part informed by historical frames. And so we need to be very clear about uh, the, the modern Australian narrative about who we are. Part of that on AUKUS, I think, is to remind people that this is in addition to, not instead of. So uh, a partnership between the US, Australia and the United Kingdom that shares greater technology, uh, you know, that is actually quite unremarkable. It's what we already do. It's been formalised into an agreement between governments. It's not an alliance. It's not a treaty. It's an articulation and a formalisation of what we already do. Uh, And part of the problem with the way in which it was announced is because Mr Morrison sought to make it as big as he did It was interpreted, I think, differently in the region. On the second issue you raised, which is the submarine capability, Mm -hmm. that does have to be worked through with Indonesia. As you know, they've raised uh, a concern that this exploits what they describe as a loophole in the NPT. Well, we need to engage with them uh, about our commitments around not arming ourselves with nuclear weapons and not allowing this capability to ever be utilised for that purpose. And we need to talk them through how we would manage the fact that we had nuclear-propelled submarines and we need to look at IAEA safeguards for the management of of that material. So there are a whole range of more technical discussions which occur, but I think it starts with a much more deeper and respectful engagement than it appears the government has participated in
0: thus far. Why does Labor support the idea of nuclear-powered submarines for Australia?
1: First, it's very important to understand the decision that's actually been made. The only actual decision that – there are two decisions, I should say, that have been actually made. One is to jump the second submarine contract after having junked the first submarine plan, which was the Japanese submarines. So eight years in, we're faced with no contract for construction of submarines and a looming capability gap about which no one appears to have an answer. The second decision that has been made is to have an 18-month consultation. Mm-hmm. So they are actually the only decisions which have been made. There is a compelling capability argument which has been put, and that has been put in the public arena. And on that basis, you know, we, we accepted the government's decision to go down uh, this path. I think after the announcement, more questions have emerged about how this is going to work. There is a long way to go on this uh, and I am more worried than I was at the announcement given the evidence to Senate estimates about the capability gap for the nation which appears to be emerging as a consequence of two discarded submarine contracts.
0: So leaving aside the capability gap after taking this evidence in estimates and so on, how confident do you feel about Australia's capacity and the wisdom to pursue nuclear-powered submarines?
1: As I said, the capability argument, which has been put publicly, I think is compelling. However, there remain many questions which need to be resolved uh, over the coming months. So I would anticipate a lot of work needs to be done about how this would actually work, what sort of timeframes are involved and what it would require in terms of the training of Australian personnel and what role Australia will have in the construction of the submarines.
0: What about the cost of the program, Penny? We know it would be more expensive than the attack class submarines, which were already, I think, the largest contract in the history of the Commonwealth of Australia. You mentioned before that uh, counterfactuals in government, you know, do you think there'd be the appetite within Labor if you're elected to press go on such an enormous exercise, given that, as you say, everything involves trade-offs? And if you're doing that, it makes it harder to, to spend on health or welfare or education.
1: Well, uh, first submarine capability is important we are of the view that the nation does need submarine capability Uh, second in terms of the cost you're right i mean i used to say the submarine contract is the largest procurement of the nation's history particularly not just acquisition remember sustainment and this will be even larger but on this i think this is a must-have capability for the foreseeable future
0: All right, last couple of questions, Penny. We talked earlier about how personally unforgiving politics is, but the uh, the, the travel schedule of the Australian Foreign Minister is sort of, you know, out of this world and other foreign ministers often marvel at how much time Australian foreign ministers need to spend in the air and attending all these sorts of conferences. If you were lucky enough to be appointed elected and then appointed foreign minister, how would you balance that with your sort of your obligations to be in Australia and playing a part as a senior national figure and also your obligations and your responsibilities to your family?
1: Yes, well, I think the last one is the more difficult one, isn't it? The politics is pretty hard on your partner and your children and being foreign minister is particularly hard. So, yeah, that's something we've talked about and we know it's going to be difficult. I mean, Maurice Payne has... Travelled very little, obviously, because of COVID. I would hope we can prioritise travel very clearly uh, and I would be prioritising the region uh, to a great extent. But, you know, these are, unfortunately, this is part of the job. One of the benefits or one of the great privileges being Prime Minister, though, is you are engaged in working to shape the world, working to shape the region and working to shape outcomes and opportunities for your country very few people get that opportunity. It's so important at the moment because we are facing, as we, as we started, very difficult circumstances.
0: Final question, Penny. If you became foreign minister, is there one international figure that you'd be most interested to work with? You mentioned Angela Merkel, but of course she's exiting the stage. Is there another figure whose work you really admire, whom you'd, you'd be keen to work with, an international figure?
1: Obviously, you know, as the foreign minister, you have to work closely with the United States. You want to work closely with your principal strategic ally. But I do think the Singaporeans and Prime Minister Lee, whose speeches over the last few years have given me the most insight into a Southeast Asian perspective of great power competition, both an individual, but also people within the the Singaporean foreign policy community really do bring a degree of insight, which I think Australia should engage with more closely. Their insight into China, their insight into the region are second to none and our advantage is, you know, they are fluent English speaking as well as Mandarin speaking. So, yeah, you know, I, I think Singapore, certainly from an intellectual perspective, uh, is a partner and you know, Prime Minister Lee is a, a thinker and a leader who's, writing and speeches on these issues, I think, are second to none.
0: Penny, I've enjoyed hearing about your journey today from Kota Kinabalu to Adelaide to Sydney to Canberra and beyond, and to hear about your foreign policy views and ambitions, and also to hear some birdsong in the background. Thank you for that. Sorry about that. I'm in
1: quarantine. By myself, and so you're getting the, the
0: bird song from the outside. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a lovely touch to finish the year on. So, thank you very much, Penny Wong, for joining me today from Adelaide for the Director's Chair. Thanks
1: very much, Michael.
0: Well, that's a wrap for the Director's Chair for 2021. I'd like to thank all my guests on the Director's Chair this year from authors Anna Funder and Philip Bobbitt to military commanders David Petraeus and Harry Harris to politicians Julia Gillard and John Howard and experts such as Michelle Flournoy and Samir Saran. I'd also like to thank my colleagues from the Lowy Institute who've helped me with this podcast, in particular, Ed McCann, Sophie McFadden, and our audio engineers, Darcy Milne and Josh Goading. And finally, thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us over the course of this remarkable year. The Director's Chair will be back in early 2022. See you then. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fulilove. Thanks for listening.